Good evening. How's everybody? Good, good. Good, good. Good to see everybody. We're going to be in Daniel chapter 5. Who takes really good notes? Does anybody remember what verse we left off in last week? I, I kind of jammed through the end of 4. Um, and I'm ready for 5 tonight. So let's just let's get to chapter 5. And I might back up a few verses to uh, just catch us up. But by way of review, we remember Nebuchadnezzar last week. And Nebuchadnezzar um, was... I believe somebody that God had a call on his life and God really wanted to work in Nebuchadnezzar's life. And you see that all the way through. You see that in chapter one and you see that in chapter two. And you see that where, where God did things that really got a hold of Nebuchadnezzar's heart. And he's seen the hand of God through um, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. Last week, Daniel was um, three times mentioned in, in, in Daniel chapter four that Daniel was full of what? You guys remember? Full of that holy thing? The Holy Spirit. And that, and that the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit was, was um, evident in Daniel's life. And for you and I, again, that's who we want to be and where we want to be, right? How would you like for your family, for your friends to say of you that, that your life it, it just exudes God. It, it, it's, it's the presence and we see the Holy Spirit in you. We see the Holy Spirit working through your situations. And so Daniel is this guy. And this influence that Daniel has is so powerful. And, and, and God is so a hold of his life that he, he's really making an impact in this, in this king's life. And as we know, Nebuchadnezzar, again, he's one of the um, greatest kings of all, of all antiquity. He's a God king. In Daniel chapter 2, can we throw up, uh, Brian, I'm sorry, can we throw up that statue, the... the uh, picture the statue, but Dan, uh, Nebuchadnezzar is this head of gold, and, and, and he gets this prophecy, and so God really wants to do something in his life. Well, Nebuchadnezzar, over time, he hardened his heart, and he got this statue, and God was working in his heart. Well, then something, because of his pride, he decided to make a statue of solid gold, 90 feet tall. And part of what Nebuchadnezzar, remember, was saying in his heart was that, um, I'm not just the head of gold. That, that these other kingdoms will never take over and that I'm, this is the great Babylon that I've created. And so kind of in defiance to this prophecy that God gives Nebuchadnezzar, he makes the entire statue of gold saying, this is me. I'm, I'm the whole thing. I'm never going to be humbled or um, be overtaken. And then he fills his heart and he begins this saying that we see in the Bible and other places. The same thing we studied last week where we saw it in, the, in, the, in Satan while he was in heaven and some of the same reasons that the Bible quotes that Satan was cast out of heaven. And one of the things that we really keyed on last week is we identified that pride is a besetting sin. It was pride that the Bible identifies as the number one um, area of judgment that God judged Satan for. Now, we know in 1 John that, that John tells us what the three things are. And we should know this. We should have these um, in our heart to know how Satan works because the Bible tells us very clearly. He says there's three areas there's three plays. We said if Satan was a football coach, it would be run left, run up the middle, run right, and he doesn't have to have a big playbook. Until you can stop those three plays, Satan doesn't need a million others. And Satan does the same things. And all the way through history, you see the same markers of Satan that are pretty simple. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. But um, there is definitely a biblical emphasis upon the sin of pride. And so that's what we hammered last week, was that God resists the proud and he lifts up the humble. And that as Christ followers... One of the things that you have to be on your guard for is pride. And then we talked about, you know, in First in, in John, the world, the world is capitalized on it. The world doesn't call it the pride of life, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh. They call it SMP. There was a big skate company when I was a kid, and they went by the name SMP. So I'm like 13 years old, 14 years old, and I used to wear these SMP shirts everywhere I went. And we made it say a lot of things, but it stands for sex, money, and power, SMP. And that's really what those three things are. Those are the three plays of Satan. They're basically sex, money, and power. And, and, but yet at the, at the heart of, of even the sexual sins, it oftentimes and most of the times, it's a pride issue. If it's money, if it's, if it's power, it's a pride issue that is at the root of, of all of these sins. So Nebuchadnezzar says, I look at the great Babylon that I have built and I have and I and I and all these me and my statements. And, and his heart was puffed up with pride. And then God judges Nebuchadnezzar in chapter four. You remember what happened? He, he, he developed a condition 
where he thought he was an ox. And so, like I said, I think in history there's been other cases and there's even some kind of scientific medical term that I, eludes me now of what this condition is where a human believes that they are an animal. They believe they're a wolf or a werewolf or a liger or something in, um, in uh, what's that guy's name? Um, oh, sorry, never mind, bad joke because I lost the name. Not Nacho Libre, the other one. Uh, Napoleon Dynamite, sorry. Napoleon Dynamite's case. Um, so, but, but where men think that they are uh, an animal and he lives as an ox for seven years. And at any time during that seven years, if he was willing to humble himself before the hand of mighty God, God would have let him out. But he had so much pride. I mean, can you imagine living as an ox for seven years? It says that his nails grew like a, you know, and the hair grew on him. And he literally ate only the grass. And um, yeah, yeah, I think after like maybe seven minutes, I would be ready to uh, humble myself and ask God for forgiveness. But this guy's heart is that hard. But God is that gracious in that. Because I really believe that had God not put him through that trial... He would have never humbled himself. And it took seven years of the most um, severe type of humbling in order for God to get a hold of his heart. But I think when God's got his eye on somebody, he's going he's gonna to get through. And, you know, and I get this feeling, and I've told you guys before, I really believe that we're going to see Nebuchadnezzar in heaven. Now, that's just my opinion. It means nothing. Um, you know, I've made that opinion about several characters in the Bible. Um, and whether I'm right or wrong, I don't know. Hopefully I'm right on a couple that are going to heaven and wrong on a couple that I don't think are going to make it. But I have a hard time with Saul, the first king of Israel in, in the Bible. I, I have a hard time seeing that guy uh, making it. But, you know, again, the Bible says we're not the judge of salvation. God is the God of salvation. And so that brings us to this this humbling of Nebuchadnezzar at the end of chapter 4. Let's look at really quick chapter 4, verse 34. I'm just going to cover the last four verses Um, I'm not sure exactly what I, I know I jammed through the end and we covered some of it. We covered the pride issue in depth, but um, it says at the end of the time and the time was how long? Seven years. I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven. So seven years, this guy wouldn't look to heaven. You remember the story of the prodigal son in in Luke's gospel? And the prodigal son was the young man who asked his father for his inheritance before his father was dead and his father gave it to him and he went to a country and he, he began to live a um, very licentious lifestyle and he was partying and he had all kinds of friends and it says that he was paying for all of their um, partying lifestyles as well until his money ran out and then all the friends t- disappeared and he went to um, a farm and he was working with pigs and a good Jewish boy had no um, business working with the swine. He said he would be happy to, he was eating the pods the swine were eating. Well, he, it says that when he came to his senses... And that's the kind of the idea. You see that for all of us. We see that. I think I, my life kind of went through that, you know, and that, that when I came to my senses and, and, you know, for me, for the prodigal son, we were at a position in life where, where God allowed us to hit rock bottom. You know, I was fully in bondage to this world in several different areas when at the time that, that I looked up and I gave my life to God. But I don't believe for a second, you know, God used it for sure. And God allowed it, but I don't believe for a second that it's God's will that we have to go through those things. I think God will absolutely spare us. I believe that God would have spared me, you know, and you guys that know my testimony, I had an experience in, in eighth grade of, of having an opportunity, a real opportunity to get my life right with Jesus, and I, uh, I chose not to fully surrender my life to God. And then at 20 years old, with the same exact prayer I said in eighth grade, but this time with the right heart, I surrendered my heart to God, and from eighth grade to 20 years old, my life went through hell in the gutter. And, um, but I don't believe that I needed to go through that. And that, that even if I didn't throw away those six, seven years, that um, you know, my life would have been very quickened and in a different place. But sometimes God does allow us to go to rock bottom. And Nebuchadnezzar hit that rock bottom spot. I mean, can you imagine? He's the, he's, he's the God king of the greatest kingdom in the world. And and he and, and what do his people what do the people think when they come by? What does wives what does wives think? And you know the people when they come by and they see him and he's just completely outside of his head and eating grass and you know the kids are throwing things at him and making fun of him and but it says he finally when he lifted his eyes to heaven and then it says I um, understanding returned to me 
my understanding returned to me. So as soon as he turned his gaze to heaven, as soon as he turned his focus to Jesus, God immediately quickened him. He healed him. He filled him with the Spirit. And it says that, um, that, that his, his understanding, which means his mind, he understood all of a sudden after seven years that he wasn't an ox, that he was a man, and that he was in a bad position. And I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored him who lives Forever And again, we can, we can take from that, we can learn from that, that we bless the Most High, we praise and honor Him. He said in Revelation to the loveless church that, that they had left their first love. And then we get, remember on our, our study in Revelation, what the solution was if you left your first love or if you're backslidden or if you're not in a, in a close place with God, it was the three R's. It was to return, remember, return, and repent. And so you, you return to your first love. To do, redo was one of them, where you do the things that you did at first. And obviously that, that always applies to husbands and wives who have been married for a while. And, you know, if the relationship is, is dry, we always tell the husbands, go back and do what you did when you first met her. Do those things that you did to woo her, to get her, to impress her. You know, the things like brush your teeth and put on deodorant. Those things you did when you were first met that you... He maybe you don't need to do anymore. And then it says in verse 35, And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven. And among the inhabitants of the earth, no one can restrain his hand or say to him, What have you, what have you done? So that, that last verse of 35, I think it's really important. Can you guys see that? Where Nebuchadnezzar says, Nobody can say um, or say to him, What have you done? That, that is, and we've talked about this topic before, and I try to be careful with this topic because I never want to be insensitive to um, or, or unrealistic about how we feel going through hard things. But this is that, that why God question. Why? Why, God, am I going through this? Why, Lord, have you allowed this? You know, and I, I can remember being a really harsh on Christians who would say, why, God, or why would God do this, or why would God allow that, and you know, being a young pastor, I'd be like, where's your faith? You don't got no faith. That's why I've got some faith in Jesus. And, you know, but, but I've softened a little bit because when, um, when my mother-in-law was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, my wife said, why? And, and I respected her as a mature believer. And then she was asking the same question that I was, that I was critical of other people for. And I, I softened my heart that, you know what, that, that's the reality of life and grieving sometimes and or going through hard things is that you do want to know why. And so, but I always caution that, that we want to be um, we want to be careful with the why of God because if the why if the why God is is followed and is, is contained in in just this really bad attitude of that God is doing you wrong, then you have to be careful with that. You know, and the, and the thing is too, you know what God told Lydia. Um, the, the the answer that He gave her, and, and it was cool because He He did answer that question for her. And he basically just said, like, if I told you why, would you be able to receive it? Would you understand? And sometimes the reality is, you know, you need to get to heaven to understand. Or would you be okay if I said it was because other people would get saved? No, I wouldn't. Like, you're not going to kill my mom so other people can get saved. He's like, no, that's my mom, you know. Like, and it didn't matter what the answer was, how noble or how great. Would you even be willing or ready to receive the wise of God? And sometimes God protects us from the wise of God. And again, just be careful as, as a Christ follower in relationship with a God that loves you, with a father who's a good, good father of the why question with God. And, and again, like I said, it's, there comes times in life where you want to know. I, mean, I think you can ask, but just ask with, with, you know, with love and sincerity in your heart and, and knowing that, um, that, that God, that hindsight is twenty twenty, and that, that God does have your best interest at hand. You know, here's the danger, I guess. Um, I'll just say, because I don't even know how else to explain it. It's a little sensitive, but one of Lydia's brothers told God in that same kind of vein, why God? And then he told God as a result, he said, God, if you take my mom, I won't serve you. And, and yeah, but, you know, and I remember telling him one time, I said, hey, man, I said, I, I know how you feel and I understand, you know, but you, you know, you know enough. You were, you were born and raised in church. You know, there's no gray area. And, and if, if you're going to walk away from the Lord, if he takes your mom, where are you going to go? Bottom line, where are you going to go? If you don't serve God, who do you serve? You serve Satan. Is that, a, is that a better alternative? And so the why, sometimes the why is like, Lord, I trust you. I don't know why. I don't understand why, God. I, 
if you want to let me know, okay, cool, but I, and I trust you, but I, I, I don't know why. So anyways, that's kind of what Nebuchadnezzar understands, is rather than him come to this point and say, why, God, did I live like an ox for seven years? He said, God, you're so good. I bless your holy name. No one could ever ask you why. Because you're so good, and, and, and Nebuchadnezzar just gets it. And that's another thing about Nebi that's just like, I don't know, that just really kind of turns me on to him, that he, he gets it, you know? You ever, you ever meet somebody, you ever talk to somebody, and whether, I don't care if it's work or ministry or life, and, and they just get it, you know? And you're just like, they just get it, you know? And this is how Nebi is. He just gets it. At the same time, my reason returned to me. So as I got my understanding back from verse 34, and for the glory of my kingdom, my honor and splendor returned to me, my counselors and nobles resorted to me, I was restored to my kingdoms and excellent majesty was added to me. I think I mentioned this last week. That's why I couldn't remember how far I went back. But I remember saying these words, that God will return to us the years, what? Remember? That the locusts have eaten. Okay? That is a biblical concept that you can hang on to in your life. Because there's nowhere, no, no, no distance that you can get from God that you can't come back. I saw this analogy, and it was kind of corny, but actually it was so true. This guy tied a rope to a buoy, and he threw it out in the water, and he let it get really, really far from him. And, and he was talking about this idea of being distant from God, and he said, it doesn't matter how far you've gone, as long as there's a connection, as long as there's, as there, you know, the Bible says in John 14 and John 15 verses 4 and 5, to abide in Christ. That's a connection that where the abide, the word abide is if, if a branch and a, and a tree and a branch, that, that place right there where the branch meets the tree, that connection that the branch has to the tree, that's the, the connection, the abide, where God says to abide, to hang out and to remain. The word abide means to remain. And so Jesus said, abide in me. And as long as there's some kind of connection to the, the branch, then the nourishments can come. And then we know the analogy, right? From the branch was where the fruit grows. And, and the fruit doesn't grow because of what the branch has done. The fruit grows because of what the trunk has done. And because the, what the trunk brings the, the, the minerals, puts them into the branch, then if you cut the branch off, and, and let's say I took a lemon tree and I cut the branch off and I put the lemon tree full of wonderful lemons here on the table and next week we come back on Wednesday night, is the branch going to have more lemons? It's going to have not more lemons and the ones that are there are going to begin to rot because the connection is not there. And so as long as we have, as long as we're connected somewhere, there's no too far you can go. You can pull that rope and the buoy will come home and, 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 and no matter where you've gone, that, that you can come back to the Lord, that God's invitation is there. You know, I can remember Pastor Gerald shares, and I, I wasn't there for this, but just for the testimony of it, but there was a, a woman, an 80-year-old woman, who, who believed that she committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And, and she hadn't walked with the Lord in 50 years of her life because she believed in her 30s. And she, she heard somewhere, or some pastor, somebody told her that, you know, her sin was so egregious that she had committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And and she was broken and she was weeping and, and Pastor Gerald got to encourage her and bring her back to the Lord and explain to her that, you know, you have not, absolutely not committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And if you have any desire to, to, to be close to God, then that in itself means you haven't committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Once you've committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, your heart is so hard, you wouldn't have any desire to come back to God. So, he, you know, so there's no, no way you can, you can go too far. And just to prove that point... The Bible is full of stories of really bad people that God used that did really bad things. The greatest character in the New Testament is a guy by the name of Paul. And Paul was straight murdering Christians. How many of you guys have just killed people because they were believed in Jesus? Anybody? You're not as bad as Paul? Okay, I think you're in good shape. I think you can come home anytime you want. In the verse 36 it says, Oh, at the same time my reason came to me, I was restored to my kingdom, and excellent majesty was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven and all of whose works are truth. Verse 37, I want you to put your name there. Now, Chris, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, all whose works are truth and his ways are justice. You know, the Bible says in the New Testament, one of my favorite verses, it says that all things that Jesus does all things well. In, in the Psalms, it says, Righteous and true are your judgments, O God. 
Nebuchadnezzar is giving this testimony multiple times here that even though he's been like an ox for seven years, he has no anger towards, the, towards God. He doesn't, he trusts the Lord. He's honoring God. And then it says that um, in, in, in Revelation, when all this judgment is happening on the world, and I mean, 80 pound hailstones are landing on people and demons and locusts and sores on people's skin, that, that those that are watching on are watching this and the angels are giving testimony and they're saying, God, you are righteous and true. That even in that, in, even when God is pouring out his judgment, they realize and they understand that God is still good and that God is good. His, he's righteous and true and that everything he does is righteous and true. Everything that God does is justified and is righteous. And that's what Nebuchadnezzar says here. All your works are truth. And that is in Jesus um, your reference there, if you take a note, Psalm 145 and verse 17 is where it says that God is righteous and true. And uh, Revelation 16:7 is where it says that he's, he's true and righteous. Um, and then it says, and those who walk in pride, he is able to put you down. It says put down, but I added the U for you. He is able to put down. So listen, if you walk in pride, remember we talked about this last week too, not just humbling ourselves, but God doesn't humble us. So that brings us to chapter 5. Now I said last week that 4 was the end of Nebuchadnezzar. There's no mention of his death, but Nebuchadnezzar dies. And then in chapter 5, we get to this guy, Belteshazzar, who is a succeeding um, king of Babylon who is in rule. Nebuchadnezzar is nothing like, uh, or, I'm sorry, Be- uh, Belteshazzar, Belshazzar. Daniel's Hebrew name is Belteshazzar, and they're similar. Belshazzar is um, nothing like his, will be his grandfather. It's going to say, obviously you guys understand, right? In the Bible, the term father in a, in a Hebrew sense um, could mean anything from your dad to your granddad to your great-granddad to your great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great. It's the same term for all, all, all the way back. They, they said, you know, the Jews said to Israel, to Jesus in Israel, our father Abraham. Well, obviously they were 20 generations, 30 generations, 40 generations removed from Abraham, but that's, that's the term that's used. And so we'll see that Belteshazzar is probably going to say your father, Nebuchadnezzar, but Nebuchadnezzar was not his father, maybe his grandfather. Um, there was another um, king that was actually ruling, a guy by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. And, and Belteshazzar, Belshazzar, I'm sorry, this first word here in Daniel 5. Now the critics of the Bible... Now, that term is always such like an oxymoron to me, but there are critics of the Bible, and one of the things they've picked heavily on the book of Daniel, but the archaeological spade every time turns up the truth. But for a lot of years, there was no archaeological proof of a king in Babylon by the name of Belshazzar. Well, now they have found, and it was on a thing called the Nebuchadnezzar stone, because the king after Nebuchadnezzar was a guy by the name of Nebuchadnezzar, would have been Belteshazzar's father, or Belshazzar's father, or father-in-law, it was possible that Belshazzar was married to Nebuchadnezzar's granddaughter, who was Nebuchadnezzar's daughter. But they found in antiquities, in archaeology, it's now, again, it's another layer, and they're all there. Oh my gosh, by this point, there are just on top of, on top of, on top of layers and layers and layers of archaeological proofs. But here's another one where the critics were um, silent because they they said there was no Belshazzar in, in Babylon, and now in the Babylonian antiquities, they've found records of um, Nebuchadnezzar and his son Belshazzar. Nebuchadnezzar was a king that was was like, he wasn't the type that would just sit at home. So he was traveling. And the other thing to understand in this situation right here is that um, Babylon itself would have been like New York City or the main city. But the, the holdings of Nebuchadnezzar and of the Babylonian kingdom, he was a world conqueror, right? So he had conquered um, territories and places all over the world. Well, there was a coming, a rising king that I, I really want to spend some time talking about, um, one of the Medo-Persian kings by the name of Cyrus. Now, Cyrus is a super um, interesting character in biblical history. One of the reasons why Cyrus is namely today is because the Jews in Israel call President Trump the, the King Cyrus of our day. They actually have minted a coin in Israel and it has a picture of King Cyrus on one side and President Trump on the other side. Because, um, and a lot of the Jews, a lot of the Orthodox Jews in Israel to this day really believe that Trump is a biblical character type like, um, you know, and if the Bible was continuing to be written, that his story would be, as this story was recorded, would be recorded in the Bible. And um, 
And, and Cyrus, what, he, what he's going to become famous and, and uh, kind of an icon for the Jews is because Cyrus is the one who's going to allow the Jews. Where, where are they right now, by the way? Where, where are all the Jews in our study in Daniel 5? Remember what, what's happening historically? They're in Babylonian captivity. Israel has been destroyed. All the Jews are, are in Babylonian captivity. How many years would they stay in Babylonian captivity? Seven zero seventy years. Why 70 years? For idolatry. And, and the 70 years comes from, there were 490 years where they didn't observe the, the Sabbath. And, and the Sabbath of Sabbaths, which was the seventh year, they were to let the land rest. In the sixth year, the, the law of Moses says that God would give them a bumper crop that would sustain them. And then the seventh year, they were to let the land rest and they were to take an entire Sabbath year. So you take a Sabbath once a week, every seven days you take a Sabbath. And every seven years, you take a Sabbath year. Now, why in the world would they not observe this? What if, what if your company told you every seven years you're going to get a year off and do nothing and we're going to pay you in the sixth year enough to cover the seventh year? Well, what they did was they went to work the seventh year because they got paid double in the sixth year and if they could get paid the seventh year, they made more money and, so they, and they didn't let the land rest and, and so 490 years God forgave them and then they, they come to the time and God judges them and they owe him and the land needs to rest for 70 years and they owe God 70 years of Sabbath. So God places them and uses this um, pagan kingdom and pagan king to bring about his judgment upon his own people. And God does that multiple times in the Bible where where he uses pagan, the, the world to judge the church. And that that's happened. And so anyways, they go into Babylonian captivity for 70 years. At the end of the 70 years, they start to go back. They start to go back under Nehemiah and Ezra, which you have in your Bible. And under Nehemiah and Ezra, they were waves of, of, of groups that were going back to Jerusalem. Well, what was happening at that time was Solomon's temple was in complete disarray. But, they, but Cyrus allowed them to go back. And then another king that, that Nehemiah was serving under, um, he's kind of a famous historical king too by the name of Artaxerxes. Langemanis. And he's going to come into our study because he's the one that's going to make the decree that's going to set the time stage for Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem in Daniel's prophecy from the day of the of the going forth uh, how's it go of da, 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 of Artaxerxes of the prophecy that that was set the time. So anyways, there these two guys were pagan kings that God that did uh, amazing things for Israel. And when, when Trump returned the uh, United States Embassy to Jerusalem and, and, and said Jerusalem was the rightful capital of Israel, and um, at that point, and even up to that point, all the things that he did, he was the most pro-Israeli president we've ever had in human history, President Trump was. And so they, um, they again, the Orthodox Jews believe him to be a uh, Cyrus type. So, um, and they're, they're actually a little more serious about it than that. So, but Cyrus, we're going to come up to Cyrus. So basically, how, how that fits in, if I haven't lost you yet. If I lost you guys, probably. Um, the Medo-Persian Empire is the next empire that's going to take over. That happens right here in chapter 5. Okay? We, we won't get um, to the Grecian Empire in, in Daniel's reign, obviously. Um, but we're, we're, we're coming to the Medo-Persian Empire. So it gets a little confusing. Turn, turn real quick one page over and look at chapter... Um, Oh, let's take it. It's in 6 too, but let's go 7, chapter 1, or verse 1 of 7. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. Now, can anybody put two and two together? If Belshazzar is going to die in chapter 5, and chapter 7 says in the first year of Belshazzar, and then in chapter 8... Um, Look at chapter 8, verse 1. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar. So we have in the first year and in the third year, 7 and 8. So basically, the, the book of Daniel is, is not in this, in this way chronological because we're getting this story in 5 about Belshazzar. By the end of 5, look at chapter 5. Um, verse 28. I'm sorry, six, yeah, yeah, I was looking at six, that's why I couldn't find it. Um, I still can't find it. Oh, yes, yes, 531 says what? 
And Darius the Mede received the kingdom being about 62 years old. And so um, Belshazzar is going to die in five, but it's just recorded in five. But then seven and eight, Daniel's going to share some visions that happened prior to where it is chronologically as we walk through Daniel. Okay, so neither here nor there, but now you'll, you'll kind of figure that out, why that is the way that is. Um, and we will meet the, the successing kings from the Medo-Persian empires, two specifically by name, Darius and Cyrus. Now, Cyrus was absolutely 100% the, the head honcho of the Medo-Persian empire, and Darius would have been like a proxy and somebody who would have, um, you know, and again, because it wasn't just Babylon they were conquering. These are world-conquering um, empires who conquered the, the known world. And so there was lots of conquest. By the time you get to five, they had already beaten all the other territories around. The, the Medo-Persian army was at the gates of, of Babylon and trying to conquer it. Belshazzar is inside, and this guy is just a moron. He's throwing drunken parties. He's not, he's not worried. Babylon was an impenetrable city. They had enough food to last for 20 years inside the city. The river Euphrates ran right through the middle of the city of Babylon with these huge iron gates on both sides of the city. There were double walls in, in around the city of Babylon, the entire city, that were 300 feet high that I told you guys were wide enough atop that you could uh, race two chariots around the top of the wall side by side. They were, they were so wide. There was, it was impenetrable. So they were just inside. The army's outside. They're not even worried about it. They're throwing parties. They got enough food inside. Their crops are being grown inside. There's water inside. Everything they need. The animals are inside. The husbandry stuff is taking place inside. And so they, they just didn't take it seriously and, and were not worried. So let's look at five one. It says, um, Belshazzar, the king, made a great feast for a thousand of his lords. Now, that sounds like a feast for a lot of people. How many of you guys ever made food for a thousand? That sounds like a lot of people, but um, before that, they were making... For Nebuchadnezzar, it was like 14,000 people that he was feeding in these certain feasts he was having. And it says, um, the Lord's drank wine in the presence of the thousand. And verse 2, what does verse 2 say? While he what? Tasted the wine. Now, that doesn't mean when he took his first sip. What that means um, grammatically is when, when the wine, when he began to feel the effects of the wine. Okay? Now listen, the Bible says, do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be ye filled with the Holy Spirit. So again, you know, if, if we're being honest to the word of God, there doesn't seem to be, there's not a prohibition in the Bible against having a drink. So I can't tell you if I'm being, you know, integral to what the word of God says, that it's a sin if you have a glass of wine at dinner with your wife or, you know, you have a drink from time to time. But but it, it is very tricky and and the Bible does say, I can tell you that it's absolutely sin to be drunk because the Bible says as much. Do not be drunk with wine. Want strong drink as a brawler and on and on and on where the Bible has. And a matter of fact, the first two mentions of alcohol in the Bible are both really bad. Noah, when he gets when Noah gets drunk and his and his daughters come in and and they they they, they have sex with him and the two kids that they have become perennial enemies of Israel to this day, the nations that were born from them and um, and, and the other one, I forget what the other one is, but they're both really bad, the very first two mentioned. The Proverbs is full of warnings against um, drinking, and we just know that um, actually today, you know, one of the things they, that we talk about a lot is um, the, the drug overdoses from heroines and prescription drugs and opioids is on the rise. But still to this day, worldwide, alcohol is the number one leading killer more than all of those things combined. Alcohol is. And it's not just, um, it's, and it, oh, I'm sorry, it doesn't include drunk driving. You would think, yeah, drunk driving kills a lot of people, but that, those stats have nothing to do with drunk driving. They're liver disease and liver failure. And um, my sister, my oldest sister, her ex-husband, they've been divorced for a while now. Uh, his name was Mark. He was living in upstate New York. But about a year ago, he died from alcohol-related um, illness. And basically, he had just drank so much that his liver just, just quit and he wasn't drinking anything else and eating right and, um, and and drank himself, literally drank himself to death. And But that that's close to home for me, but that story is repeated. And again, the leading cause of death in the world, um, way, way more than all the other things, suicide and all the things we talk about, drug addictions. And, you know, you think of heroin overdoses and heroin is, is again, on the rise in those things. But yet it still pales in comparison because, you know, like, 
I don't know, it's like you see a friend who's shooting heroin, you're like, that's bad, dude, that's going to kill you, what are you doing? Like, you know, don't do that. But you don't really think that with alcohol. It, it's accepted. It's accepted worldwide. But, but it's definitely killer. And, um, and the Bible, again, so where, where's that line? I heard a pastor say, well, okay, the Bible says that, you know, there's not a prohibition against having a drink, that there's liberty in Christ, but there is a prohibition um, against getting drunk. So where do you draw that line? That's tough, right? You know, like the thing is, um, what about, what, what if you drew the line at, um, if you got pulled over, would you be legally um, illegal to drive? Yeah, that's not much, especially in Utah. It's like .004 in Utah, isn't it? .05, it's like I think it's 7 in California. And Utah, just I remember the law, last 8, 08. Yeah, 08, then that's what it is, 08. So the, the law, um, they just changed the law in Utah, went into effect last year or something. So, I mean, again, the, these standards, they're so, you know, it, it, it's tough. It's tough. And the thing is, I'm not, I'm not a Pharisee either. You know, if, if you're drinking, you're doing those things, I love you. It's not about judging anybody. But it, it's definitely just about encouraging us that, you know, those things can be dangerous. You know, and the thing is, too, like e- even guys that, that, that can, um, that have no problem with alcoholism. Now, obviously, you know, the Bible says that your, 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 your liberty in Christ cannot cause another, another brother to stumble. So that's a um, prohibition in the Bible against drinking. Like, you have the liberty. It's not a problem for you. You're not going to become an alcoholic. You're not going to be you know, addicted to it. It's, you can do it responsibly. But you have that, that drink, and one of your friends or somebody in your family who, who is a former alcoholic, or they see you with that liberty, and it causes them to stumble... Now your liberty has caused another brother to stumble, and that that's prohibited biblically, you know. And so, it's just, you know, I don't know all the problems, right? Of you can't become and and two for the kids. So for that dad or that mom who who can have a drink in the house and you know it not be a problem. And um, but their kids, maybe their kids seeing that they won't have that ability, and, and that little liberty. That, that, that's in the home will, will will one day translate to kids becoming alcoholics and become problems. And so, again, it is so complicated. It's so difficult, right, to to try to navigate those waters and, and and do them right. You know, the easiest thing is just to be a teetotaler, and you know, or so um, so he was drunk. So when he felt the effects, and again, you know, alcohol is a um, Right now in our country, too, the the push right now is to legalize marijuana socially in all 50 states. But one, one of the one of the factors of THC is THC. Um, that, that's the the substance in, in pot marijuana that, that gets you high. It is a gag um, um, prohibitor. So, so it prevents you from gagging. It stops you from gagging. It stops gag reflexes. That's one of the attributes of THC. But bottom line, what I'm trying to say is that scientifically it's true. When, when you smoke pot, you can drink a lot more um, before you gag or throw up or do those things. And so it's, um, you know, again, for our young people that are being encouraged in, the, in these things, it's also another area that's just creating more alcoholism and more problems. And so, so this guy is drunk and he's there drinking and they're having basically a drunken orgy is, is the bottom line of what's going on here. It says, so when he felt the effects of the wine, Belshazzar gave the command to bring the gold and silver vessels, which his father Nebuchadnezzar, and again, I already explained that's not his father, it's his grandfather or great-grandfather. Nebuchadnezzar had taken, or his father and great-grandfather-in-law, from the temple which had been in Jerusalem, that the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Now he's deliberately challenging... Um, the God of heaven, and, and they're there again. And he's going through the same thing. And when Daniel's going to show up here in a minute and Daniel's going to call this guy on the carpet, he's going to tell him as much. Like your father, your dad, your great-granddad, whatever, your father Nebuchadnezzar, he learned these lessons and somehow you missed them. You would have seen them all. Belshazzar would have been probably a teenager when his, when his grandfather Nebuchadnezzar was an ox and eating grass and he's seen these things. And he would have been there when Nebuchadnezzar came to and gave glory to God and honor to God. And, and he says, and Daniel's going to tell him, man, you saw all these things and you learned nothing. But he's the same area of pride that these kings have and nobody can penetrate us. And here, and here we are. And so go get the things of the temple. So they go and all those things that Nebuchadnezzar took from Solomon's temple and brought back to Babylon. 
they're taking those, those sacred artifacts, the Holy Grail and those things, and they borrowed that from uh, Indiana Jones, and they're drinking from them, and they're just using them in complete just blasphemy. And it says, then they brought the gold vessels from the temple, which had been taken from the temple of the house. I read that. Wives and concubines, verse 4, and they drank wine, and they praised the gods of gold and silver and bronze and iron and wood and stone. You know, this was very common in, um, in, in Israel's history. And, and in the pagans to this day, um, all over the world, is that they literally carve their gods in wood and stone and gold and silver, and they worship these things. You know, the psalm says, one of, one of uh, verses I think you should be familiar with, in the psalms it says, in Psalm 115, it says, Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but your name give glory, because your mercy, because of your truth. Why should the Gentiles say, so where is their God? Listen, but our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. Their idols or their gods are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. Listen, they have mouths, but they do not speak. They have eyes, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. They have noses, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not handle. They have um, feet, but they do not walk. Nor do they mutter through their throat. Those who make them are like them, so is everyone who trusts in them. Pastor Chuck used to say all the time that, you know, we fashion gods, basically we worship ourselves apart from Jesus, apart from God, apart from relationship with Christ. And we become our gods and we actually fashion things in, into the, you know, where we become our own gods. But they have these gods. And, and, you know, I think we read this in the Bible. And this is how I used to process it. Like, well, I don't, I don't worship idols. I don't have little gods in my house, you know. It was funny, true story. When I was a kid, and my, we had no, like my mom's like from the Bible Belt, Kansas. She grew up in a city called Mankato, Kansas. And my mom was not a, not a Christian or not really a churchgoer, but she was a good person type of thing. You know, my mom just believed in that, that she was a good person, and she was, and that God wouldn't judge her because she was, you know, she wasn't murdering people and doing things. But anyways, I don't know if she got it as a gift or something. My whole life growing up, on my mom's dresser, it was about this tall, and she would use this to hold all of her necklaces. She would keep her necklaces on it. But we had a Buddha doll. And, a, and it was green, big fat belly, a little Buddha doll on my mom's dresser growing up, you know. And, and again, she didn't worship it or have those things. But, you know, we don't necessarily, again, carve idols and have things. How many of you guys have false idols in your house? And I think, oh, okay, I'm good. I'm, I'm not guilty of those things. But, you know, that, that if... if I think we've got to be careful and understand that maybe there are things in our life that are equivalent to this or equate to this. And nowadays, we worship these, worship these little idols. We just park them in the garage. And we, and we wash them. And, we, you know, and then you take them to the mall and you park them sideways in three parking spaces so that somebody doesn't open their door and give your God a ding. You know, Isn't it kind of sad that men have gods that can be dinged? You know, or remember Laban when when uh, when Laban came and found I was thinking drawing a blank on his who was it was it Isaac, Abraham Isaac and Jacob when Jacob left Laban and and Leah took the gods Laban's gods and then Laban chased her down and he said to Jacob he said Jacob you've not only taken my daughters but you've stolen my gods <laughs> isn't that funny like do you have gods that can be stolen you have gods that can be dinged. Like, yeah, and and when when Elijah was going against the prophets of Baal and, you know, he was mocking their gods and he was saying, oh, maybe your God is sleeping. Maybe your God is in the bathroom relieving himself and just wait a minute, he'll be out, you know, and and these 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 gods. But again, we can have maybe things in our lives that are idols. I still don't really have, honestly, a, a a great definition of what and how to how to really qualify quantify those things but you know anything i've heard one time uh, i think this is somewhat true but anything you put before god is an idol right anything that that's more important to god and, and again be careful right because it doesn't mean that you can't have things that you're fond of or hobbies or those things i mean i personally believe especially if you're in the ministry that your hobby needs to be the word of god and that you can you can have things you like but you can't really have a, a main hobby that's not the word of god your hobby your life has to be the word of god but we can have hobbies, we can have things we like, 
Um, like in where we, we read in Sunday when, it, when, when Jesus said that you have to hate father, mother, brother, sister for my name's sake. So those things can become idols if you put them before God. And that word hate means love less. So that you have to love less your father, your mother, your brother, sister for Jesus' sake. Just basically in a skinny, it means that God has to be first in your life. God has to be first in your life. You know, um, my sister, God love her, and I, I love my little sister. She's amazing, and she's walking with the Lord today. And But her and I, over the last 20 years, have had this discussion um, about her her husband and her kids. And, and, and I've told her that she has to put her husband before her kids. And, um, and and she would just say, oh, I know how you feel, Chris, but I just love my kids so much. And my kids are first, you know, and and and, and just the idea that, you know, I can remember being a young guy and thinking, and before I knew Jesus, and I would, and I would tell people, like, you know when you're a kid, just be like, what do you, who do you love the most? Oh, I love my mom, and then I love uh, chocolate, and then I love my brother. And you'd have this list of who you loved and how and what order they went in. And, but even as a young person, I remember always putting God first. I love God, then my mom, then my family. And, you know, so God has to be first. Anything in your life that's coming before God is an idol and can particularly be an idol. And again, you don't have little idols that you carve and have mouths that don't speak, but you may have idols in your life you need to identify. You know, get out your checkbooks. If you keep a record of your checks and where you've written your last 20 checks, where are they to? Maybe that's in a way to identify things that are really important in your life, where you're spending your money. You get out your bank statement and the things where you spend the most of your money, That is that become an idol in your life, you know, is, is God in the, in that list or is God in that, in that thing? All right. So let's go on. So they have these little gods and, uh, so they got, they, they worship the gods basically is what it says. Um, in the same hour, verse five, the finger of a man's hand appeared and wrote opposite the lampstand on a, on a plaster of wall in the King's palace and saw the part of the hand that wrote. So they've actually found in antiquities this hall where these guys would have met in Babylon and they even know the distance, 157 feet long and like 100 feet was this big, huge hall of the old days. And then the king's countenance changed and his thoughts troubled him so that the joints of his hips were loosened. Who has a King James Version? Anybody read the King James? What does it say? The joints of his loins. So we're in church, right? But I gotta, so I got to be careful what I said. So is it, is it terrible if I, oh, I, maybe I can say he pooped himself? He peed himself? His loins were loosed. And then look at what this next one says. That his thoughts troubled him, his loins were loosed, and his knees knocked against each other. You know, all these things that you see, like, even this, even this thing with this handwriting. So this hand, did you catch what I just read? Because the hand comes on the wall. The hand starts writing on the wall. He says that he, he sees what's going on. He wets himself. Literally, this is not like, this is not like metaphor made up. Like this is literal, his physical reaction. This happened in human history. Like if you were there, this guy starts soiling himself. And his knees like uncontrollably start doing this. But this is what we say, like, oh, you scared when you're making fun of somebody. But where did we get the idea that that meant scared? Your knees knock one to another. comes from the Bible. When you say, how many of you have heard the expression, uh, oh, the handwriting's on the wall? What does that mean, by the way? What does that expression mean, the handwriting's on the wall? It means, like, something bad's going to happen. It's pretty obvious something bad's going to happen. It's pretty uh, eminent, like it's going to happen. It's obvious the handwriting's on the wall. So, um, I had, a, I had a pastor, my first pastor, his name's Cliff Watson. He's still near and dear to my heart because he baptized me and he was a pastor at Calvary Chapel, Val Vista, still is to this day. Um, I got saved in 98, so I met Phil, I met, he was my pastor from like 99 and uh, 2000, maybe just about 2000 I went, no, that's not true. I got saved in 94, I went to Bible college in 96, I got married in 98. So from 94 to 96, he would have been my pastor. But he was really good at ping pong. And I, and I love to play ping pong. Still to this day, I have a ping pong table in my basement. And, but I never beat the dude one time. And he used to always, and his, his expression, Pastor Cliff's expression was always, oh, one knee smotes the other. So I always remember this in my mind from Pastor Cliff because you were afraid to play him in ping pong. If you wanted to play him in ping pong, one of your knees would smote the other. Um, so you can tell your kids that, your friends that, one knee smotes the other. Well, that's literally what's happening is that he's, he's so gripped by fear. Now, speaking of fear, 
right? Just as a, as a gentle reminder, especially uh, concerning the coronavirus for some of y'all, for all of us. The Bible says he's not given you a spirit of fear, but that of power and of love and a sound mind. Okay, no spirit of fear. We're not afraid. Are we afraid to die? We don't go jump off a cliff, but we're not afraid to die. When we die, we get to go to see Jesus. Dying is not dying. Dying is living. Okay, and then it says, um, um, the king cried aloud to bring in the astrologers. Now, why do these guys, every time it's the same story, right? Nebuchadnezzar did the same thing. We bring in the astrologers, the soothsayers, the magicians, da, 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 da. None of it works. And then, oh, let's go get Daniel. That's what's going to happen. Um, in verse number nine, then King Belshazzar was greatly troubled. Now, again, I've told you guys this a hundred times, but the Bible cannot exaggerate. Okay. So when you see these things in your Bible, you know that they're accurate descriptions of what was going on. Greatly troubled. His countenance was changed and his Lords were astonished. You guys know what the word countenance means? You understand that? You know, you know, your countenance will absolutely change. This is one of the things I'm sure when you saw Daniel who had the amazing testimony that he was full of the Holy Spirit, that, that was his countenance. It was something about him. It was a glow. It was the way his face looked. And, and our countenances change when, when we're not close to God, when we're, when we're not walking right, when something's going wrong in your life or you're not just doing bad and you're in a distant place from God. People can see that in you. It's called your countenance. There's something about you that changes. And whether it's completely physical, big, dark, black rings under your eyes, and you just look like you, you got hit by a bus, or maybe not even the case, but, but there is a deeper than just how you look on the outside that you can't hide, this thing called a countenance. So his countenance has visibly changed. In verse 10, it says the queen, this is probably like the queen mother, or maybe like uh, one of Nebuchadnezzar's wives, because of the words of the king and his lords, came to the banquet hall, and the queen spoke, saying, oh, king, live forever. She's going to flatter him. Do not let your thoughts be troubled to you, nor let your countenance change. You know, she, she again would have lived with the same pride. Those walls are impenetrable. That army could stay out there for 20 more years. We're fine. This is a man. There is a man in your kingdom who is whom the spirit of the holy God. Another testimony over and over again. We're going to get two more in this chapter, too, besides this one. Um, whom the spirit of the holy God and in the days of your father, Nebuchadnezzar, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in this guy, Daniel. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father, the king, and that's a little chide, your father, the king, who was a real king, not like you, made him chief of the magicians, the astrologers, the Chaldeans, the soothsayers, inasmuch as an excellent spirit, knowledge and understanding, interpreting dreams, solving riddles, and explaining enigmas were found in this Daniel whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called and he will give the interpretation. And then Daniel, then Daniel, right? Then Daniel. We saw that before. Then Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar even did that. Called them all in. Then Daniel. So Daniel's called in and he was brought before the king. And the king spoke and said to Daniel, Are you that Daniel who is the one of the captives from Judah, whom my father, the king, brought from Judah? Now, why didn't... Um, Belteshazzar, Belshazzar, know who Daniel was. And again, just in a practical thing, he served under Nebuchadnezzar. Belshazzar would have been uh, the son of, of, of Nebonidus, and, and, and he probably wouldn't have been around. Daniel would have been in other areas at this time. And so he finally gets to meet Daniel for the first time. He's, he's no doubt um, heard of him. And he says that in verse 14. I have heard of you that the, what does he say? I, I think I've lost count how many times we have this testimony of Daniel that people can see the spirit of God in him and that the light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the astrologers have been brought in before me that they should read the writings and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not give the interpretation of the thing. And I have heard of you that you can give the interpretation and explain enigmas. Now, if you can read the writings and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third under the, under the rule of, in the kingdom. And why would, Daniel, why would Belshazzar make Daniel the third and not the second like Nebuchadnezzar did? Because he was already the second. Belshazzar was the second because his father, uh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, would have been the real king. And again, Nebuchadnezzar was out trying to fight Cyrus and do different things outside the walls of Babylon. And so he said, I'll make you the third of the kingdom. And then Daniel answered and said before the king, 
Let your gifts be for yourself. You can keep your money. What, what is your money and title going to do to me when I give you this interpretation and you're going to be dead by the end of this night? And the Medo-Persians are going to come through these walls and they're going to, you know. But, but again, Daniel was not moved by these um, things, these, this money. And, and it's definitely a danger, especially in the ministry. Pastor Chuck was given so many um, over the years in his big, huge ministry and people. He was given so many elaborate gifts that he either turned down or couldn't keep. Somebody gave him a Rolex one time, and he, he kept the Rolex, but he never one time wore it. He put it in his office drawer in his desk, and that's where it stayed till the day he died, the, that Rolex watch. Um, one of my favorite stories, Calvary stories, true story, um, Raul Reese was, was building. He was in a building project. And multiple times in Raul Reese's ministry, people have written in million-dollar checks. Multiple times. Yeah, and true stories. But this one time, a guy... Um, wrote Raul Reese a million dollar check. And again, they're in the middle of building. The, the building that Raul Reese was in, they borrowed $17 million. They're in L.A. They're in an expensive thing. It's this market thing, this big, huge church. But it's $17 million project that they were building this church with. Well, anyways, this guy gave him a check for a million dollars. And the guy told him, he said, I'm not really a Christian. I'm not really walking with the Lord. But he said, I want to give this gift to the church. And I want you to say a prayer for me to the, the, you know, the, the good old boy upstairs. And, and Raul perceived that this guy in his heart thought that he was buying favor with God, with his money. And, and Raul did the very difficult thing, but the true thing, and he ripped the check up right in front of the guy. And he said, I'm sorry, I can't take a million dollars. I'm sorry, I can't take your money because I can't be a part of sending a message to you that you can buy God's grace. And then, and then shared the gospel with him and told him, you can't buy it with money. You, you give me this money and you go home feeling good about yourself and you end up in hell. Your, your blood is going to be on my hands and, and, and didn't take the money. And, and so here, Daniel, he tells these guys, dude, keep your money. And, and too, the Bible says this. Um, this was in my message for Sunday, and I didn't get to, I didn't get to this, this note, but um, with, with Balaam. And Balaam was on the other side of that coin. You remember Balak, that pagan king, he enticed Balaam to curse the people of Israel with money, And because he wanted the money, and because of the, as it says in Titus, verse 11, because of the greed of Balaam that, that he did it. But the Bible says this. It says, As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards in the manifold grace of God. And that's not the verse I'm looking for at all. It's in 1 Peter, or 1 Timothy, not Peter. Sorry, y'all. 6 5. 1 Timothy 6 5. You're writing things down. It says, um, Now these are, these are kind of like, very strongly worded verses that I think we should pay attention to. It says, Useless wranglings of men, of corrupt minds, and destitute of the truth, who suppose, listen, these men, they suppose that godliness is a means for gain. So they use godliness to get money. And then, and then look what it says. From such, anybody know what it says? Withdraw yourselves. Remove yourselves. Don't be a part of men who use godliness as a means to, to get money. And so, um, so withdraw yourself. Have nothing to do with them. Don't give to them. You know. Any of you guys have have any of you guys um, watched a, a, a preacher on TV asking for money and felt maybe a little like you wanted to give or obligated? I have in the past. You know, before before I I matured a little bit. You know, and there was this like guilt feeling and like oh like there was like this oh I have to give if I want to be blessed or nonsense nonsense from such withdraw yourself. So Daniel tells, tells uh, old Bel- Belteshazzar, Belshazzar, keep your money, dude. It's not going to matter anyways. In verse 18, now he's going to give him the interpretation, but I love Daniel because Daniel's like, okay, I'll give you the interpretation. But first you're going to get a little sermon, and he's going to preach a little sermon to him. O king, the Most High God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, a kingdom and majesty and glory and honor. So again, now Daniel is giving testimony of what Nebuchadnezzar took seven years to realize was that God gave him this kingdom. God gave him this great Babylon. And he says, God gave this great Babylon to your father Nebuchadnezzar and you have fallen in the same trap of pride thinking that this is something that you have and nobody can ever touch it. And he says, and because of the majesty that he gave him, all peoples, nations, languages trembled and feared before him. Whomever he wished, he executed Whomever he wished, he kept alive. Whomever he wished, he set up. And whomever he wished, he put down. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened in pride, he was deposed 
from his kingly throne, and they took his glory from him. Then he was driven from the sons of men. His heart was made like the beast, and his dwellings was with the, with the wild donkeys. They fed him with grass like an oxen, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of men and appoints over it whomever he chooses. But you, his son Belshazzar, have, done, have not humbled your heart, although you knew all of this. And you have lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven, and they have brought the vessels of his house before you, and you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them, and you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, of iron, of wood, of stone, which do not see nor or hear or know that the God who holds you your breath in his hands and owns all your ways you have not glorified. Listen, that should, that should humble you. That should kind of encourage you, scare you. I don't know what. That God holds your breath in His hands. What if God lets go? I can remember uh, one of my good friends from Yucca Valley. He's actually a mechanic, um, but he just has a gift for the Word of God. And he came up here when we were, we were planting this church, and he taught on a Wednesday night. And I'll still remember it. I mean, you know a teaching was good when years and years and years later you remember some points from it. And he said that he was talking about that part in the Bible where the, 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 the God particle, that, that the glue that holds things together, you have positively charged, um, what are they called? Ions? Neutrons. Positively charged neutrons inside the nucleus of every atom. And, and every atom within you should repel, it should explode. When they, when they figured out how to split an atom, that's when we came up with the atom bomb. Hiroshima was the result. So within your body, within your very body, within the cells that make up this pulpit, within the cells that make up everything, are, are these, these cells that are positively charged that should explode. And science is still to this day, they've actually created in Switzerland that Prototron, whatever that thing is, that uh, collider, hadron collider, and and they're basically what they're trying to do with this trillion-dollar, multi-hundred-billion-dollar project is figure out what in the nucleus of an atom actually is it that holds it, holds it together. Because they won't just say, and the Bible says it's God. God holds all things together. And so this, they 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 literally, they think the scientific term is atomic glue. But they won't. But it's missing. They can't see it. And absolutely, these, these charges should repel, and they, they don't. But the Bible says that, that, that Jesus holds them all together. And, and he was sharing this, this message. I didn't prepare any of that, so I was all messed up on some of those details. I apologize. But the, the, he was saying that the, the very nails that they used to put in Jesus' hands, that he was holding them together. And he's like, I don't know about you, but I would have let go. That's all he had to do was let go. And, and Jesus didn't let go. He actually held those things together, the very nails that went through his hands and the, the crown of thorns and the, the very people that punched him. And, you know, the, the, the Jesus died, the, the, the song says on the radio, on a hill that he created. You know, and um, so, all right, let's finish, you guys. We've got, like, we're out of time, actually. Um, and I do want to finish just a little bit more of this. And it says, verse 24, and he says, Then the fingers and the hand were sent from him, and this writing was written. And the inscription that was written, Meeny, meeny, tekel, you farsin. Everybody. Meeny, meeny, tekel, you farsin. Okay, now you learned a Bible verse today, a part of it. Yeah, you can tell your family, how did the memory verse at church today? Meeny, meeny, tekel, you farsin. This is the interpretation of each word. Meeny, God has numbered your kingdom and finished it. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, or in other words, you farsen. It's just there's a grammatical thing there. These words would have had no, no vowels, just the consonants. Daniel would have had to interpret them. So this Perez is, is the same thing as you farsen. Perez, your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. So God has numbered you. He weighed you and divided you. You have been weighed and found wanting. So this entire... Thing, it's beautiful um, linguistics that God uses. Now, if God shows up and writes a little message on the wall, you know it's going to be cool, right? And it's going to have some cool linguistics and some cool grammatic, like, put together and ideas and thoughts. But this, this entire idea and thought is all of, of weights and scales. 
And, and one of the things about, you know, religion, all religions of the world have one thing in common outside of a personal relationship with Jesus. Apart from being born again and, and being forgiven in the blood of Jesus, the one thing that all the religions of the world have in common is some kind of weights and balance system. That if your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, that you're a good person, that, that, that that's kind of the scale that God judges on. Every one of them. And we could get into it. I'm out of time, so I don't have time. But you could pick one right now, and I could begin to show you and tell you the, the scale system that every religion has. It's a good versus bad. It's being a good person. And even the Jews, even in Judaism to this day, that's how they, that's how they relate to God is through this system. And so God says, listen, no scale will ever save you, only Jesus. The Bible says if you fall, if you sin in one jot or one tittle, you're guilty of breaking the entire law. So, so it's not a, it's not a, it's not a, a, a percentage good and bad. It's either pass or fail. And if you have one little sin in your life, you fail. And then, and then if you fail, which we all do, because the Bible says all have fallen short of the glory of God, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, then we need Jesus um, is the only way that we're going to be saved. So he says, you have been weighed and found wanting. And then Belshazzar gave the command. And they clothed Daniel with the purple, and they put the chain of gold on him. They gave him some bling anyways. Daniel didn't want it, but the guy put the gold around his neck and made a proclamation concerning him that he should be made third ruler in the kingdom. And that very night, Belshazzar, the king of the Chaldeans, was slain, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Meanie, meanie, tekel, you farson. You don't want to see the handwriting of God show up and write that on your wall. Let's stand. Let's pray.